It's Sunday, 2 p.m., and we are back with a new episode of Reading Continues at Home, a podcast produced by Melu Solfjeld and the Weisse House. The fifth episode is entitled A Room of One's Own and is curated in two chapters, whereas the first one is dedicated to learning how to live and become plant or planet. The second part is focusing on biopolitics and a decision to continue living as silverbats. Sounds promising, right? So today we start off with Andrea Kapranovic reading from Vienna, Karen Westergaard Andersen and Malu Julskier, both reading from Copenhagen. As the reading circle started out live at the Weisse House in Vienna, where people were exposing themselves by reading out live in front of strangers, we want to create a podcast as authentic as possible. And we encourage our participants not to be perfect, but stay real and simply read. Because as Malou has pointed out, by sharing our vulnerability, we're joining in on a common healing process while we read. So thanks for tuning in and enjoy listening. Welcome back to Reading Continues at Home. We are now on episode five, which I think is a bit crazy. I mean, who would have guessed that? We for sure did not plan this, but nevertheless, we are very happy to continue to meet and read together with you week after week. I want to share some good news from my side today, since last week I did not feel well, and I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that I had to share that, but I'm not so good at pretending. So the good news in my personal bubble today is that I've had quite some friends who's been sick during the past weeks, and now I finally got the news that they are all recovering. Besides COVID-19, I've had two friends hospitalized for different reasons and both of them are now also finally back in their homes again. One of them had an urgent surgery and she's my age, which I would say is too young for cancer, but of course it's not. And it was really scary and I've been crying every day and, you know, she couldn't have any visitors because of the the virus pandemic. But finally she survived and uh, that makes me just extremely happy and grateful. And it also reminds me how much better I should become in the future, you know, of appreciating um, the presence and and be together with the people I love rather than running towards unknown times and places and people from other times and places and so on. You get the picture. So this week I've attended two new reading circles on Zoom and a full moon ceremony with two of my friends from London and New York. And the first reading group was in Bratislava, hosted by Transit, and the London-based curator Bobala Sos. And the second was in Basel, hosted by Blasphemic Reading Suarez. In the latter, we discussed how we've all become digital housewives, and in the former, we made an exercise of becoming forest. 
both of them were very inspiring and so was the full moon circle. As you probably know, the idea is to release what no longer serves you during full moon. So basically we're spending the next two weeks of letting go of whatever this may be that no longer serves us. And then on April April 23rd, it will be new moon again. And this means that it's the beginning of a new circle, meaning the time to set intentions for what we wish to be realized during the following month. When I told my dad that I was doing this, he laughed and he asked me if I was now going to become a witch. And this made me sad. I can't believe that even my own dad is not aware that I already am a witch. I mean, he raised me as a pee longstocking, so what did he expect? But for this reason, namely that some of you listening might be uh, equally as unaware or judgmental as my dad, I decided to mention the moon today because I want to share the moon with all of you. The moon is not just for witches. The moon is a phenomena on the sky that has the magic ability of bringing us together all over the world. Just like the podcast. Whereas the podcast is made by us, the moon, however, is, as far as I know, not made by humans. And it does not come out every Sunday at 2 p.m. The moon comes and goes in its own circles and it indeed has its own circles. We can see that, which also adds another layer to the magic of the moon. The moon is a way of keeping track of time, which can be very difficult these days. Like when I was in the digital housewife reading circle, suddenly there were so many bells ringing in, in the Zoom and uh, I realized that all the other participants in the Zoom meeting were in Basel and they had the sound of the same bell tower coming in through their windows. And I really loved that. So I asked them to, to take me out uh, to the window to see the church. And if it had not been for that sound, I probably wouldn't have known what time it was. Or maybe I would not even have known that time was. After the full moon circle finished, it was half past midnight here in my part of the world. But for my friend in New York, it was time for an apéro. So I had a drink with her in the sun and suddenly she said, hang on, now we're clapping. And she as well brought me to her window and that was when I realized the time was 7 p.m., Time for clapping for all the amazing healthcare staff who are doing a priceless job all over the world. And to zoom back in on my own little world here in the countryside, <clears throat> no one claps at seven, but there is a sunset around the same time. Maybe it's a bit later, but it gives me an idea of time. And every Friday there's a Sing Together Apart show broadcasted on TV. And it's funny because I haven't watched TV since I was a kid. You know, I don't even own a TV, but 
I have an iPad where I can see it. So every Friday now I tune in and I sing, which is another way of stimulating and reconnecting with my body. The TV is filming all over Denmark, showing how people sing simultaneously from each their living room. And it sometimes makes me cry. <clears throat> Another time indicator is that my mom sends me a goodnight text saying sleep well. Sometimes accompanied by a photo of the sunset of the moon. When she does this, I'm reminded to eat. It's not because we're in different time zones, but we do have a bit different time schedules and also I often forget to eat. So when she's on her way to bed, I realize that it's that time of the day when normal people have already had dinner. So I usually decide to do the same. In the morning, I know that time has passed 10 a.m. when I see Johan König go, go live on Instagram. This has become a daily ritual that I enjoy, to follow different artists and colleagues of all sorts sharing their corner life and discussing the impact on the art world. Johan made this um, daily show, as he now calls it, to make the art market more transparent, he said. And no matter how tacky this may sound, I think he's really doing a great job. And if you're thinking why someone would follow the, the news from the art world instead of the so-called real news, I would just kindly ask you to remember that artists are our time's canaries of the coal mine, as Kurt Vonnegut once said. A final thing that I want to tell you about how I learned about time these days is that when I first got here, where I am now, flying back from Austria to Denmark, I arrived to my quarantine house on March 15th. By the way, have you noticed that I think I can now say quarantine? Which is a bit sad because I hoped I wouldn't be able to say that before it was over. Anyways, returning from another country back then, I was not allowed to go to the supermarket or to go anywhere for two weeks. So I was a little bit worried about food supplies. My dad told me not to worry because he had already done the, the grocery shopping in advance. And also he said, soon you will have rhubarbs in the garden. And I thought this was amazing to have like a, to become self-sustainable from the garden. So I was really excited and I asked him when exactly this soon meant. And then he looked at me and he smiled and he hesitated for quite a while. And then he said, maybe in two weeks time. And now it's been four weeks and the rhubarbs are very beautiful and they're growing, but they are still not ready. Also, what I thought was going to be Only two weeks, but two very long and lonely weeks of isolation has now become four weeks of isolation. But to be honest, it hasn't been as lonely as I thought since, you know, I found all these ways to navigate through online sources to avoid going insane 
out of loneliness. But I still miss all of you. This is my day number 28. My name is Melu and I'm reading from Denmark. So today's reading is special in many ways. But one reason for this is that as in all the former episodes, I have chosen at least most of the texts. This time it's um, all the readers themselves who have chosen their texts. So they've all contacted us um, to ask if they could read this specific text. And I of course said yes, because um, it's, it's, really, it's really nice to... You know, sometimes they didn't even ask if they could read the text. Sometimes they just read it and recorded it and sent to me. And it's just so nice to, yeah, as I said before, get all these small uh, gifts of um, of readings. So thank you for this. And after listening to um, seven different voices, I decided to make two episodes under the same title. So the title of today is uh, A Room of One's Own. And we are unfortunately not reading Virginia Woolf today. But of course you can see the title as an homage to her. And it's a title I came to think about when I was listening to Andrea, who's reading Adolf Loos. But it's also a title that I often think about given the fact that, you know, I live most of the time in a room of my own, as I guess you do too these days. But let us just read. The first voice we're going to hear is Andrea, my um, friend from Vienna, who I know through Galerie Christine Koenig, where she works as the associate director. And throughout the past years of uh, art fairs in Vienna and Copenhagen, she has become more than a colleague. So I'm very happy to have her as my friend in the reading circle today. And the text she chose to read, to read is uh, written, actually we cannot find the exact year, but it's written during the settlement movement of Vienna. So in case you don't know what the settlement movement of Vienna is, I will just read um, a very short um, explanation. So quote begins now. The development of the settlement movement in Vienna dates back to the time around 1918, when the Austrian capital was suffering from economic hardship and severe food shortage in the wake of the First World War. Initially, the movement came into being as a self-help initiative when hunger and the lack of housing drove thousands of Viennese citizens to establish subsistence settlements on the edges of the city. Apart from a few more permanent houses, most of these dwellings were initially makeshift wooden structures accompanied by subsistence gardens for growing fruit and vegetables as well as keeping small domestic animals. By 1921, the first wild settlers had organized themselves into cooperative associations 
and were receiving financial support from the municipality of Vienna. Adolf Loos was appointed architectural director. Hi, my name is Andrea. I live and work in Vienna and I also read from Vienna today. When Malou asked me to contribute something to the reading circle, I immediately thought of a text by Adolf Loos uh, that is titled Learning How to Live. It was one of the many essays Adolf Loos wrote during his times here in Vienna in the 1910s and 20s. And it is part of an anthology called Creating Your Home with Style, which was translated by Michael Edward Troy. And I'm going to read uh, some parts out of this essay. Learning how to live. The new movement ha that has stricken all the residents of the city like a rampant fever, the settlement movement, requires a new person. And as Leberecht Migge, a German landscape architect, the great gardener, so correctly points out, they will need to have mother nerves. It is easy for us to describe the people with mother nerves. We do not have to strain our fantasy. They already exist, just not in Austria. They are located somewhere further west. Obtaining the nerves the Americans already possess today will be left up to our descendants. In America, the city dweller and the farmer are not so clearly distinguishable from each other as they are here. Every farmer is half a city dweller and every city dweller half a farmer. The American city dweller has not distanced himself as far from nature as his European counterpart has, or to define it more precisely, the continental European, because the Englishman is pretty much still a farmer. Both the English and the Americans consider living together with other people under one roof a rather unpleasant situation. Every person, rich and poor, strives to live in his own home, be it just a cottage or a dilapidated hut with a shabby straw roof hanging down. In the city they have theaters and build apartment blocks in which the individual apartments can cover two floors connected by a wooden staircase, cottages built on top of each other. And with this I have come to the first point of what I would like to elaborate on. The individual in his own home lives on two floors. He clearly separates his life in two parts, in life during the day and life at night, in residing and in sleeping. One should not view life on two floors as something uncomfortable. Bedrooms in the way that we are accustomed to do not exist. They are too small and not very livable. The only piece of furniture is the white lacquered iron or brass bed. Even a bedside table will not be found. And there is certainly no standing closet. This is replaced by a walk-in closet, which we might easily term an enclosure. The bedrooms are only for sleeping purposes. They are easy to tidy up. One advantage they do have over our bedrooms is the fact that they only have one door and therefore can never be used as a walk-through room. In the morning, the whole family comes downstairs at the same time. Even the baby is brought down and remains with the mother throughout the day in the living rooms. Every family has one large table at which the entire family congregates for meals. Farmers do the same. In Vienna, only about 20% of the population does this. And how does the other 80% make do? Well, one sits by the stove, three at the table, and the others, and there usually are others, sit along the window boards. Now every family that lives in its own home should get a table that, just like the table of the farmer, is located in the living room. Having meals just like the farmers, that certainly will cause a revolution. There are voices for and against. No, we will never do that. I saw the farmers in Upper Austria do this, 
They sit there at the table and eat all from the same bowl. No, we're not used to such practices. We eat separately. A concerned father said, What? At a table? What for? To prepare my children for tavern visits? When I tell people these stories, they laugh heartily, but I'm crying inside. Be they rich or poor, farmer or millionaire, oatmeal is part of the daily breakfast diet of all Americans. Lunch is a very simple procedure. The father is not at home and the mother is busy throughout the morning cleaning the house because she does not have a servant or cleaning lady. It was this missing hired help that brought about meals being prepared and served in the living room, for it is the right of the woman of the house to spend her time in the living room and not in the kitchen. However, such arrangements require more than just technical expertise. They require individuals who are not afraid of cooking. We, who have a mild aversion to cooking, a feeling that farmers, the English and Americans do not have, wonder why these foreigners are able to have their meals in hotel dining rooms where the food is cooked inside of the guests. If one really wishes to settle, then this individual must learn, relearn the basics. We must forget about the municipal apartment blocks. If we wish to go to the countryside, then we have to let the farmers teach us his way of life. We have to learn how to live. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading, Andrea. And thanks for introducing this text. You know, it was new to me and um, it's absolutely perfect for these days where we all could use some kind of guide in learning how to live. And um, the way the text analyzes the difference between city dweller and farmer reminded me of another text um, that we read in the Bratislava reading group about the difference between city and forest. And um, it kind of said that if by city we mean human and forest we mean non-human, this is wrong. Because the article, um, it's it's published on Eflux recently, we can put a link up to it. It shows how um, also the forest, they were using the Amazonas as um, the prime example of an authentic nature, is also, or is already a city on its own, culturally shaped by indigenous people throughout thousands of years. And in this same reading group, we also uh, read The Hidden Life of Trees, where we learned about the language of trees and how they communicate with each other, which I must say was extremely fascinating. So I think we should read this text too one day. If anyone wants to read it, please let me know. But um, back to the Laws text, you know, I actually enjoyed the, the clear the, uh, division between uh, individual in his own private house versus the, the public space. And maybe because this seems like, uh, seems like such a different time, you know, when there still was any such thing as a public space existing. And I know that there's still parks and so, but now when we're all isolated in our own private sphere it just feels like um, very far away and then I also like the explanation of how the man in his home had two floors one for day and one for night even though I think this is what Lewis is criticizing I'm not sure but um, 
Anyway, it reminded me of Walter Benjamin uh, and his uh, thoughts on the interior and the arcades and the dwelling in the city. I think we should read Benjamin too, one day soon. And finally, I like um, the part where Andrea and uh, and Adolf Loos says, "When I tell this story to people, they laugh while crying inside." I think. This is probably how most of us feel these days, no matter which story we're telling ourselves or each other about this crazy condition of being, as they they put it so beautiful in German, they say, um, we are einsam gemeinsam. In English, I think you say, we are divided but united. We must learn how to live Andrea said. And this brings us to the next text, which is Arundhati Roy, read by Khan. Khan is a Danish curator who runs the exhibition space Ariel in Copenhagen together with Nina Wilk. And through their reading circle, I have come to consider Khan not only as a great source of inspiration, but also as a dear friend. So when I heard that uh, she was going through COVID-19, it made me really sad to know that she was sick. But luckily she has now recovered and she has offered to read a text for us, which um, actually made her aware of how we can learn to live from the way that trees, plants, birds and other non-human species live. So... I'm quoting now. While I was sick, this is something she tells me in an email. While I was sick, I noticed how breathing became the utmost important thing in my life. Perhaps this was a small insight into the life of plants. Okay, end of quote. But in fact, I will I will read you the full quote. Um of what she wrote me because it's so beautiful she really writes well but I will uh, have to freely uh, translate it because she's reading to me in Danish and I will try to directly translate it to you in English so she says it's interesting how the virus that has made the capitalistic machinery forced to halt is a virus that causes a condition to human beings where the only thing one can think of is how to get oxygen and avoid the feeling of too much carbon dioxide in our bodies. I wonder if this is a tiny, tiny uh, microscopic insight, like on a microscopic scale, it's an insight into what it means to be a plant. Okay, um, end of quote. I need to pause for for um, for a while because actually when I'm reading this, um, she didn't write plant, she, write, she wrote planet. And I'm not sure if this is a Freudian slip, um, but we just continue the quote. To be a field full of pesticides or a sea full of plastic, trying to breathe... Maybe we who are going through COVID-19 
gets the chance to feel the condition of the lungs of the planet desperate to breathe on our own body, in our own body. This is at least what I thought of when I was in the worst phase. That's quite um, that's quite powerful, Khan. Thank you so much for sharing this. And it's it's really tough and at the same time very poetic. And now I will um, let you read. Thanks. Hi there, my name is Karen and I'm reading to you from the comfort of my home together with my dog. And I'm reading Arundhati Roy, who's a Indian author, mostly of non-fiction, but she also wrote two novels, God of Small Things, and the most recent one published in 2017, that's called The Ministry of Utmost Happiness. And I will read um, a bit from this, from the beginning um, and the preface. So, uh, to the unconsoled. A magic hour when the sun is gone, but the light has not. Armies of flying foxes unhinge themselves from the banyan trees in the old graveyard and drift across the city like smoke. When the bats leave, the crows come home. Not all the din of their homecoming fills the silence left by the sparrows that have gone missing and the old white-backed vultures, custodians of the dead for more than a hundred million years that have been wiped out. The vultures died of dilophenic poisoning, diclophenic cow aspirin given to cattle as a muscle relaxant to ease pain and increase the production of milk works worked like nerve, nerve gas on white-backed vultures. Each chemically rele- relaxed milk-producing cow or buffalo that died became poison, poisoned vulture bait. A cattle turned into better dairy machines as the city ate more ice cream, butterscotch crunch, nutty buddy, and chocolate chip. As it drank more mango milkshake, vultures' necks began to droop as though they were tired and simply couldn't stay awake. Silver beards of saliva dripped from their beaks, and one by one they tumbled off their branches dead. Not many noticed the passing of the friendly old birds. There was so much else to look forward to. Chapter 1. Where do all birds go to die? She lived in the graveyard like a tree. At dawn she saw the crows off and welcomed the bats home. At dusk she did the opposite. Between the shifts she conferred with the ghosts of vultures that loomed in her high branches. She felt the gentle grip of their talons like an ache in an amputated limb. She gathered they weren't altogether unhappy at having excused themselves and excited from from the story. When she first moved in, she endured months of casual cruelty like a tree would, without flinching. She didn't turn to see which small boy had thrown a stone at her, didn't crane her neck to read the insult scratched into her bark. When people called her names, clown without a circus, queen without a palace, she let the herd blow through her branches like a breeze and used the music of her rustling leaves as balm to ease the pain. It was only after Siodin, 
The blind imam who had once led the prayers in the Fatipuri Masjid befriended her and began to visit her that the neighborhood decided it was time to leave her in peace. Long ago, a man who knew English told her that her name written backwards in English spelled Matnu. In the English version of the story of Lila and Matnu, he said, Manu was called Romeo and Lila was Juliet. She found that hilarious. You mean I've made a kitchit of their story, she asked. What would they do when they find that Lila may actually be Manu and Romy was really July? The next time he saw her, the man who knew English said he had made a mistake. Her name spelled backwards would be Moina, which wasn't a name and meant nothing at all. To this she said, it doesn't matter. If I'm all of them, I'm Romy and July, I'm Lila and Manu, I'm Muina, why not, who says my name is Anjum. I'm not a Jum, I'm Anjuman, I'm Mephil, I'm a gathering of everybody and nobody, of everything and nothing. Is there anyone else you would like to invite? Everyone's invited. The man who knew English said it was clever of her to come up with that one. He said he had never thought of it himself. She said, how could you have, with your standard of Urdu? What do you think, English makes you clever automatically? He laughed. She laughed at his laugh. They shared a filter cigarette. He complained that Wilt's navy-cut cigarettes were short and stumpy and simply not worth the price. She said she preferred them any day to Foursquare or the very manly red and white. She didn't remember his name now. Perhaps she never knew it. He was long gone, the man who knew English, to, who, to wherever he had to go. And she was living in the graveyard behind the government hospital. For company, she had her steel gotre Almir, in which she kept her music, scratched records and tapes, an old harmonium, her clothes, jewelry, her father's poetry books, her photo albums, and a few press clippings that had survived the fire of the cover cup. She hung the key around her neck on a black thread along with her bent silver toothpick. She slept on a threadbare Persian carpet that she locked up in the day and rolled, unrolled between two graves at night as a private joke, never the same two unconsecutive nights. She still smoked, still a navy cut. One morning, while she read the newspaper aloud to him, the old imam, who clearly hadn't been listening, asked, affecting a casual air. Is it true that even the Hindus among you are buried, not cremated? Sensing trouble, she prevaricated. True is what true? What is truth? Unwilling to be deflected from his line of inquiry, the imam muttered a mechanical response, Sak kura hai, kura hi sak hai. Truth is God, God is truth. The sort of wisdom that was available on the backs of the painted trucks that roared down the highways. Then he narrowed the, his blind green eyes and asked in a sly green whisper, Tell me, you people, when you die, where do they bury you? Who battle, who bathes the bodies? Who says the prayers? And Jum said nothing for a long time. Then she leaned across and whispered back, untree like, Imam Sahib, when people speak of color, red, blue, orange, when they describe the sky at sunset or moonrise during Ramzan, what goes through your mind? Having wounded each other thus deeply, almost mortally, 
The two sat quietly, side by side, on someone's sunny grave, hemorrhaging. Eventually, it was Anjum who broke the silence. You tell me, she said, you're the Imam Sahib, not me. Where do all birds go to die? Do they fall on us like stones from the sky? Do we stumble on their bodies in the streets? Do you not think that the all-seeing, almighty one who put us on this earth has made proper arrangements to take us away? That day, the imam's visit ended earlier than usual, and Jum watched him leave, tap-tap-tapping his way through the graves, his seeing eye cane making music as it encountered the empty booze bottles and discarded syringes that lithered his path. She didn't stop him. She knew he'd be back. No matter how elaborate its charade, she recognized loneliness when she saw it. She sensed that in some strange, tangible way, He needed her shade as much as she needed his, and she had learned from experience that need was a warehouse that could accommodate a considerable amount of cruelty, even though Anjum's departure from the Kavakav had been far from cordial, she knew that its dreams and its secrets were not hers alone to betray. Thank you so much, Khan, for sharing this beautiful text. You know, I had never read uh, Arun Hati before, but since you sent me this, I've been um, reading everything I could find online, and she's really amazing. And um, there's this article about how COVID-19 is affecting India, and I think it's really a must-read for everyone. And uh, we will also put a link to it. Uh, Khan sent me this text separate, and uh, and we at the Weisse House can, and can link to it. Yesterday I sent this article to the Danish newspaper that I'm reading and I really hope they will publish it because it's so important to read. Also written by uh, Ron Hati Roy. Okay, so Karen made me aware um, that this question of where do birds go to die can be asked also in the context of the canaries in the coal mine as I mentioned a little bit earlier. So inspired by Kurt Vonnegut, I've been thinking about artists uh, as the canaries in the coal mine uh, in relation to my exhibition at Das Weisse Haus. You see, artists have always been ahead of the rest of society in um, kind of putting things on the agenda, like talking about difficult topics that everyone else were either not aware of or maybe simply just refused to talk about, like a climate crisis or the loss of biodiversity, for example. However, the comparison of artists in the coal mine today is, like Karen said to me, the artists are definitely among the first ones to be affected of the pandemic uh, and the crisis, the economical crisis it causes because they're losing their exhibitions and they're losing their jobs and they, of course, also lose their income. So the question is, where do they go to die? Of course, you know, I sure hope that they go to the studio and um, and not die, of course, um, but keep doing what they're doing. And um, the only way we can kind of help them 
continue going to the studio is if that we support them. So I will just repeat what I said last week. Please buy art. Now is the time for buying art. And now is also a great time to access a lot of really good works um, for an affordable price. It really, really makes a difference. But if we should... Um, if I should keep focus on the text, um, what I especially like is this part about uh, Romeo and Juliet and the distinction between who is Romeo and who is Juliet. And the, and the narrator um, answers, she says, I am all of them. I am a gathering of everybody and of nobody, everything and nothing. Is there anyone else you would like to invite? Because everyone's invited. Isn't it great? I love it. It also totally reminds me of Pippi, uh, Pippi Longstocking, as we read last week. Because just like Pippi is open to um, inviting everyone, everyone can join her games. Her, Yeah, she doesn't even call them games. I think she... Um, everyone can join Pippi on the next um, adventure, you can say, expedition. And she's also making fun of math, if you remember the, the plutification of Phoebe. And here in this text, the character says, do you think that English makes you clever? And that also really made me laugh. I think it was uh, such a good question. And it reminded me of the Canadian pavilion in the Venice Biennale last year. It was a video work showing the local um, Inuit, the hunters on the ice. They were like in the middle of nowhere. And two of them were having a conversation in their own language. So I could only read it in the subtitles, but I remember it goes something like this. So the first person says, They say that one day we will all speak English. And then there's a long break, like of silence, where they just look around. And then the other person answers, Well, at least today is a beautiful day. And I just loved it so much. And uh, I think it was great. Just such a small fragment of, uh, of the development of the world. Um, and the language we use to communicate with like art and like English and like video art. And you can watch it online. Um, you just have to go to Isuma TV. So it's I-S-U-M-A dot TV. We can also make a link to this. Okay, so the last text in this um, chapter of the episode that is called A Room of One's Own so this is part one, is read by Malou, whom I met quite some years ago in a church. And I think uh, none of us has attended many church services in our lives, but there is one special church in Copenhagen that uh, actually no longer serves as a traditional church, but it has been transformed into a community kitchen. 
and this was here we met. I think it's maybe five or six years ago. And um, not only did we share uh, the same name, but we also share a lot of interests. And um, yeah, Malou is a, she's a researcher and a professor at the, the university here in Denmark. And so even though I've been out of Denmark for quite some years, we stayed in touch and um, we exchanged articles and thoughts. And within a last year after I returned to Denmark, we've been uh, drinking coffee and beers frequently and we've been discussing our own writing. Because Malou came out with a book um, last year, 2019, about Karen Barat and um, the queer feminist quantum mechanical um, philosophy called Agential Realism. I don't know how to say it in English, actually. Agential Realism in Danish. So the book is in Danish and uh, we won't share it with you right now. But um, it has really been a huge source of inspiration for me throughout my work with the show in Vienna. Um, it also inspired the title of, of the show. Um, I sent the proposal to Das Weiße Haus back in January. And the title of that proposal and of the show was New Homes for Horses, Cats and Canaries. A Quantum Mechanical Tiger Spring of Entangled Becoming. So um, Malou's book about quantum mechanics, feminism and post-colonialism, among many other things. I strongly encourage you, if you can read Danish, to get a copy. And if not, um, we will read Karen Barrett and Donna Haraway one day here in the podcast. Um, but for now, I will actually let Malou introduce her own text. Hi. I'm Lou. I am talking to you from Copenhagen, and it's uh, late in the evening. Um, I'm talking because I would like to share some passages from a paper on care, as I find that this concept is quite important in these times that we are in. Um, concepts are part of the world. They are material practices of enacting the world in some ways and not others. And at the moment I find that care and caring has become quite precarious. So I would like to invite you to ponder with me about uh, what it may mean to care. This is Partly because um, of the effects of listening to the first podcast of uh, Reading Continues at Home. I did that one evening before going to sleep and I woke up the next morning pondering about care. Perhaps because the reading circle had touched me. Um, I thought about how the reading to me also was the sound of care. Caring voices, voices and reading as care work. Um, 
the reading circle is in a way also a reaction to the moment we are in. It's an answer to the question of how to care at a distance and from a distance, how to stay in touch when we cannot touch, how to touch in new ways. In these times, I feel the need to learn to listen and to care in ways that are indeed still indetermined as of how to do that. I experience that I care in ways that make me totally overwhelmed and I suspect that this is the case for many people. Many contradictory effects run through me, as caring for the planet also affects pleasure of how pollution rates drop when Anthropos takes a step back. And when I look at photos of, for example, wild boars in the streets of Barcelona, it feels like the animals are queering city life and the human's position in it. And in a way, this is deliciously odd. And I also ponder then about how about the very small animals, the insects? What, what may they sense in this state of the planet? How are they doing as Anthropos is taking a step back? Anyway, so I think about the labor of care and how it becomes so precarious at the moment. I have read that to care can mean to trouble oneself. To trouble means to stop taking stuff for granted, hesitate, reconsider the effects of your doing and non-doing, or even trouble and question the Anthropos. <clears throat> We're in the middle of this pandemic, which at the moment accelerate the attention of what we may care for and care about. And uh, so how is care so unevenly distributed across the globe as well as within societies? It's, I guess, always the case. But how about the hierarchies of care? Who and what do we care for more and less? Which bodies, which conditions of living, what societal conditions of possibility of care takes place? What personal conditions of possibility? I ask myself if in this precarious time of caring, are we once more accelerating human exceptionalism through this hyper-attention to human health conditions. I don't know, but I care about a world to come. I ponder about what futures we are already contrib contributing to enact through the ways in which we, as individuals and societies, care. How to care about a world to come, possible futures that are both here already and will somehow never really arrive. At moments of such utterly confusion, I normally turn to literature and to poetry and to philosophy and to concepts, concepts to use as thinking technologies. So in this case, I have read or reread a paper by scholar Astrid Schrader who in her work explores questions of responsibility and care and agency in scientific knowledge production. And um, uh, 
the relationship between anthropocentrism and conceptions of time and questions of environmental justice. In the paper that I would like to read some pieces, small pieces from, Astrid Schrader introduces the reader to Hugh Raffles' Introsectopedia entry on Chernobyl. In the entry, Raffles describes how uh, the Swiss scientific illustrator, artist and environmental activist Cornelia Hesser-Honegger collects and studies and paints morphologically deformed leaf bugs that she finds in the proximity of nuclear power plants. This spurs question of how come and how to care about deformed leaf bugs when there is so much human suffering going on. Estelle Schrader is speculating about the role of care in knowledge practices through Hesse Honegger's paintings and her painting practices. So Schrader questions well-known and everyday taken for granted thinking about care. And she asks, how may we begin to think about care in the production of knowledge and at all? I will read from the paper sections here and there. So I have sort of caught up parts of or cropped parts of her text and left out so many references that Schrader has and so much of her text uh, in a move to try to make some sort of a fluid reading that may open for new associations uh, through just little snippets of her texts and to think and to sense with it. Um, I, I do apologize to Astrid for this very selective use, but it has a purpose. <coughs> so, I start now. To care can mean to trouble oneself, which for many scholars in the so-called post-humanities also means to trouble the self, the self that grounds the humanist subject. In postmodern philosophy, subjectivity and relations to self are indissociably linked to conceptions of time. How can care trouble our anthropocentric time? Learning to listen to trouble means beginning to care, and active listening requires a withdrawal of the self and exercise in passivity and engagement at the same time. Two broad meanings of care should be distinguished. One entails the often gendered labor of caring for somebody in need, and the other alludes to an affective relation or caring about. Caring for somebody is usually goal-oriented, as it involves an effort to improve the situation of a patient. Modeled after healthcare practices, even if extended to non-human animals, the receiver of care is often defined through a lack of ability or autonomy. To care for something means being concerned about what it threatens or might transform the limit that defines it. Beginning to care about something or someone implies an opposite move, namely the transformation of the limit that places someone outside our socially sanctioned scope of care. In institutionalized mode of caring, 
Caring for somebody in need is surely possible without caring about somebody. That is, caring practices do not necessarily imply affection, sympathy or compassion. Caring about someone does not have to issue from uh, a specific need, nor must it translate into a specific action. Would it be possible to begin to care without an a priori identification or categorization of an object of care? Can we conceive of a less anthropocentric notion of care that is attentive to indeterminacies in its practices and which is not an action, a doing, a handling of something? So shifting the question from how to care well for an already defined subject to how do we begin to care. Caring becomes an opening to become with those with whom we are not yet, which requires attention to the temporality of care. Approaching the question of how we begin to care about non-human animals, I suggest involves a double move, the transformation of the historical limit between human and non-human animals and attention to a fundamental passivity in caring knowledge practices. The paintings by Hesse Hoenger provoke compassion. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, compassion means suffering with another. Compassion does not presuppose being in the presence of another or a feeling for another. Compassion is not altruism, nor is it identification. It is the disturbance of violent relatedness. <clears throat> For Derrida, it is the possibility of sharing such a non-power, mortality as a vulnerability, a passivity within life, an, an impossible experience that enables the experience of compassion. Compassion also involves what Elizabeth Grosch calls an intensification of sensation, a meaning-making seeing simultaneously embodied and disembodying. It disembodies affection, allowing it to spread across subject, object and species lines. To think such an abyssal intimacy with care that keeps the viewer that keeps the viewer suspended in a zone of indeterminacy, hesitating, slowing down, not exactly knowing what to do, confused, listening intensely to what might uh, still be hidden before and behind the painting, but also desiring to act with passion, requires a different logic of time, a different deconstruction of the metaphysics of self-presence different from the privilege of futurity or the teleology of a gathering and its demand for immediate or direct action. These paintings move us, but they do not necessarily move us in time. They do not prompt us to immediate reaction, literal movement, as if we already knew in advance what would be the right thing to do. Both the aesthetic effect and the political effect are tied to the power of indetermination. 
Caring requires decisions, but not without experiencing the ordeal of the undecidability. A caring subject is always out of sync with itself, always too eager, no, <laughs> always too early or too late to be itself. While we may have to choose our particular struggles, we do not have to decide in advance about whom to care. Compassion and care as affective relations or modes of attention do not take time, rather they make time different, differently. Thank you. Thank you so much, Malou, for curating, selecting and reading these amazing excerpts and also reflecting upon um, what it means to care for and to care about. And of course it made me think um, about curating because this is also very much a job of caretaking. To those who are not familiar with curating, um, the word comes from the Latin cura, so it's it's caring. And um, also in late Middle English, as it says when you look up the word, um, the meaning of the curator is a guardian of a minor, which I think makes a lot of sense in, um, in regard to what Melodius read on the leaf box in the aftermath of Chernobyl. And this minor, maybe we need to read some Deleuze and Guattari again soon, because they have uh, they've written a lot about the, the philosophy of the minor, which is quite interesting. Um, we read it the first time for our reading circle, which was um, the live version uh, where we could still meet. So it's not in any of the podcasts. I think we should... Um, think we should reread it soon. But for now, I will just say thanks to everyone who was reading. Thanks to everyone who was writing. Thanks to everyone who was listening. Thanks to Das Weiser House for producing and hosting. Thanks to all the caring people in the world. Remember to not only read, but also to care and to share. As I said in the beginning, we have divided today's uh, episode into two chapters. And there are several reasons for this decision, but one of them is that um, one of the readers who sent me his voice during this week, he's Italian and he has an amazing Italian dialect. And he was reading a text on capitalism and because of his pronunciation of capitalism it made me think of uh, the Danish and German word kapitel so it's the Danish German word for chapter and uh, I was a bit curious about uh, the connection between chapter and um, capitalism and capital and I looked it up and I found out that the kapitel chapter means a small head originating in the word um, kaput means head and um, I just thought this was really cute with this small head and also it's weird and you know I really just didn't have any idea how to get my head around this so 
I decided to um, make these small heads myself and divide uh, up the podcast into not only episodes, but also small heads, also known as chapters. And the next chapter will take us into another room of one's own, where Rosa Luxemburg is writing letters from her prison. It will also take us into the umwelt or the environment of several minor species like the tick and the spider who spins us into the web of ideas by Giorgio Agamben. And through our Italian friend, we will question the words by Mark Fischer, Friedrich Jameson and Slavoj Sisek of whether it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Finally, we will finish off by two beautiful poems from Zagreb in an explosion inviting us to forget our names, like Arun Hatid Roy's character did to become a gathering. This time we will travel to Iceland in a time of long recovery. The title of today's episode 5, chapter 1, was called A Room of One's Own, Learning How to Live and Become Plant, Plant or Planet. And um, the second chapter, we will continue discussing solitude, caring and precarious relations and also work relations to, in, with and across our surroundings. We have decided to call the, the next chapter as part of episode 5, also a room of one's own, but with the additional title Biopolitics and the decision to continue living as silver bats, counting days with sensors in our throats. And this last part is a quote from Maria Dejanovic's um, poem that we will read next Sunday. So, Kapitel 2, Chapter 2, on SunCloud, next Sunday, April 19th. And in the meantime, you can enjoy... The favorite wine of my best friend, uh, which is called Kapitel 1. And uh, she says you can just order it online. And I think they bring it to your door. It's apparently a really good nature wine. And I've also heard that it's totally okay to drink alcohol on queer times of the day during a pandemic. So let me just... Um, Remind you about this reading circle that you can find a full reading list on the website of Studio Das Weiße Haus, so you can continue reading at home. I think I at some point mentioned how how I was always reading through hyperlinks. Um, I even think there's an artwork called Hyperlinks, or it didn't exist, isn't it, uh, Cecile B. Evans? Yes, it is Cecilia Evans. I looked it up. So it's called... See, now I just did it again. 
but it's called uh, Hyperlinks or It Didn't Happen. And the work is by Cecile B. Evans and it's from 2014. You can find it online for your home video art cinema. And what I wanted to say with this is that even now when I'm listening to all your beautiful voices reading out loud for me, I still somehow uh, read through hyperlinks. You know, I keep looking up things um, that your text reminds me about. And you know that thing when you click, you can like click right and then say open in new tab. So instead of clicking directly to the hyperlink, you just open in new tab. And then you know that it's there waiting for you in the new tab. It makes you feel good and safe because you know now you have even more knowledge available it's waiting for you just around the corner in the next window. But in fact, you never open it. So you never read it because in the meantime, you've opened 20 new open and new tabs windows and you've forgotten about the first one. So, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but for me, it's very exhausting. It's tough to be so hungry for knowledge. And I guess I just wanted to say that... Um, I don't know if it's possible, but I think it should be possible on SoundCloud. You can download this podcast and then you can put your phone on flight mode while you listen um, in order to not get disturbed if you share this same desire as I have for more and more and more hyperlinks. And um, maybe you can even, you know, take a piece of paper and a pen, thinking back to Nietzsche and the typewriter, what we talked about last time. And then you can uh, write down everything um, that the reading brings to your mind. And of course, you're more than welcome to share these thoughts with us. I would really love to receive a, a paper full of, of your thoughts. Um, and I know that some of you already do this. Uh, I'm very, very happy and grateful for this. Like Malou today, for example, she was... Um, explaining how her reading was actually inspired by former readings and this is exactly the whole idea of why we make this podcast you know creating a reading circle is to inspire and expire which i guess you know familiar i guess you're by now familiar with the expression inspiration inspire expire inhale exhale um, it's the purpose is to breathe together Einsam, gemeinsam, divided but united. Hey, thank you so much for today. I'm looking forward to sharing both Kapitel 1 und 2 with you very soon. Take care, stay safe. Ciao. Many thanks to our readers for their inspiring contributions. Our special thanks go to Malu Solfjeld for curating and organizing the readings and to Anna de Dios Rodriguez for the technical support. Thank you for listening, and join us again next Sunday at 2 p.m., when reading continues at home. <laughs>